Now, the topic for this uh, closing talk is uh, uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension in uh, daily life. In approaching uh, this uh, topic, what uh, will guide us are some of uh, the questions asked uh, some uh, last week uh, on Thursday as part of the uh, question and answer session. Now, the first uh, question that uh, was uh, that concerns our topic is as follows: How do you place this type of practice within the whole life path of a lay person? So, in answer to this certain question, the following could be said. With the end of an intensive Satipatthana meditation retreat, like our one-month retreat here at the Forest Refuge, obviously our mindfulness practice does not end. But rather, we try to alternate intensive retreat practice with periods of mindfulness in daily uh, practice. When we practice mindfulness in our daily life, then there's different ways to do this. We could um, set aside an hour or two, or if we, uh, if we are fortunate, even three hours for formal mindfulness meditation practice, or a combination, for instance, of let's say one session of loving kindness meditation, which is a form of samatha meditation, and then another, the second session, which highlights the uh, mindfulness practice. We could further endeavor to integrate mindfulness into our daily activities as much as possible. So to be mindful of or while taking a meal, to be mindful while we're doing the dishes, or when opening, closing the doors, getting into the car, getting out of the car, mindfulness when um, uh, engaging in a telephone conversation, and mindfulness when taking a shower, and so on and so forth. There's plenty of opportunities right there. 
yet another way of integrating mindfulness into our daily life would be by participating in a, a sitting group, if such a group exists in our vicinity. If not, if we happen to be uh, a rather experienced uh, retreat, and then we might suddenly consider uh, setting up a, a sitting group. But uh, with this, uh, not to immediately uh, claim that one is uh, an experienced teacher. Being part of a sitting group has certain the benefit or brings the benefit of the support by like-minded people. And this certainly stimulate us to continue with our mindfulness certain practice in daily life. Another possibility of integrating mindfulness into our daily life would be to, on occasion, schedule a weekend certain retreat, self-retreat at home or um, if available uh, in a uh, in cabin in some uh, remote and quiet certain place. Doing such a short self-retreat or together with others would give our mindfulness practice a good boost and again with this we might feel encouraged to continue. During intensive mindfulness meditation retreats, the development in one's practice in terms of the wisdom that unfolds, that certain development tends to be rather uh, a rather steep and certain quick development. Whereas during when engaging in mindfulness during a daily life, the development will be somewhat certain slower and not as certain steep. However, what counts is the persistence to stay with it over a longer period of time, and then you know, things can uh, def or things will definitely uh, change. Now, when we engage or when we you know, bring mindfulness into our uh, daily life, you know, then it would be wise you know, to include the aspect of sila, namely ethical conduct, to pay closest attention to this, to l actually live 
um, or to establish, to make sure that one is well established in ethical conduct. And so this may add an additional component or an additional layer to your practice. Usually, when there's a willingness to observe at least the five precepts, then this will ensure ethical conduct, strict or, or well, wholesome conduct. We might further consider to let our interactions with others to be influenced by the influence guided by the four divine abodes, namely the qualities of loving kindness, of compassion, of fitness, sympathetic joy, and of equanimity. So in the Bali scripture language known as metta, karuna, mudita, and upeka. Over time, we may notice that our concentration will improve, our intuitive wisdom will develop, our initial faith will be strengthened, and our mindfulness, of course, will improve, our perception, the mind's quality, of perception will get sharper and sharper. Our effort is likely to improve as well as equanimity. And it could further be that wrong views gradually get substituted by right views. Joy comes, more and more joy comes to, into our life, more and more happiness arises. We might suddenly experience a peace within and then we might further notice that unwholesome deeds decrease and wholesome deeds increase. We might even notice how over time our one specific attitude among many, many of course, many others. So an attitude of easily seeing others' certain mistakes, that certain may then change to more and more see one's own shortcomings and then making the necessary amends.
with an integration of mindfulness into our daily life, we will surely become, we will surely develop a foothold in the Buddha's Satna teachings. And with this sudden, um, uh, there will be a purification, namely by overcoming doubt and uh, or correct knowledge. Modern scientific research shows that mindfulness integrated in a sustained manner into our daily life will bring about profound changes and will bring about profound changes when it comes to the brain and certainly when it comes to the mind, and even it can bring about altered traits, which means that certain certain, certain habits, certain tendencies that we might have will be replaced, let's say unwholesome tendencies will be replaced by more wholesome ones. But, as I've said, the condition here is that your practice is certainly pretty uh, continuous. The second certain question to be answered in the context of this closing talk is the following, namely, can you please talk about benefits of practicing at home with mindfulness and clear comprehension? And related to this topic is another question that Satna says, please share with us how else, in what other ways can we use or employ our practice to help ourselves and those whose lives we touch. Now, the benefits of practicing at home with mindfulness and clear comprehension. So, before I'm going into, um, before mentioning any of the benefits, allow me to briefly give you at least the definition for clear comprehension. 
Clear comprehension is acting in a clearly conscious way in the Pali scripture language given as Sampajana Kari Hoti. Now, part of that is as explained by the commentator for clear comprehensions. Namely, clear comprehension of purpose or benefit of an action planned. Sataka Sampajanya in the Pali scriptural language. Then, clear comprehension of suitability. Sabaya Sampajanya in the Pali scriptural language. And as number three, we have clear comprehension of, to, of domain or territory. And this in the Pali scriptural language is given as Gochara Sampajanya. And the domain that is being referred to here consists of the four establishments of mindfulness. So we want to make sure that suddenly we remain with our actions within these certain four establishments of mindfulness. And finally, there is clear comprehension of non-delusion in other words, clear comprehension of reality of the activity concerned or differently put a discernment of things in their true nature free from delusion. Now relevant, especially relevant to our to the question about certain benefits of practicing mindfulness and certain clear comprehension are the first two clear comprehensions, namely clear comprehension of benefits or purpose being one and clear comprehension of suitability being the other. Now, before we engage in some action, be it bodily a bodily action or a verbal action or a mental action, we do uh, want to uh, reflect or we do want to check carefully what certain the benefit or what the purpose of this might certainly be. So if there is a benefit you know, from a Dhamma point of view, you know, then one you know, could um, consider that action. But still, it will be wise to also check uh, you know, whether you know, there, you know, check the clear comprehension of suitability. An action planned may be beneficial, there may be a good purpose to it, yet in a particular context it might certainly not be suitable.
to give you one example, learning a foreign language surely uh, is certainly beneficial, and certainly in the future this might be uh, very useful. However, attempting to learn a foreign language uh, during intensive retreat would be would be suitable or unsuitable, what would you say? Unsuitable, of course. Or, to give a Dhamma dog is certainly surely a beneficial thing to do, if an audience is there, but to do it at midnight in a busy discotheque, that might not be quite certain that's suitable. Now, what does clear comprehension mean in the context of mindfulness practice at home or in our daily life? It means that we do carefully want to check our, um, our activities, things that we intend to do. So if we find, or, or our purpose surely must be to develop more and more mindfulness, to strengthen our concentration, to encourage the arising of intuitive wisdom. And if we find that an activity that we intend to do will either not be beneficial nor suitable, then obviously we uh, refrain from this. We do not uh, implement uh, this idea. If an action planned may be beneficial, but it's out of context, it's suitable, then we simply refrain from it. But if it's both beneficial and certainly suitable, it helps us in our uh, Dhamma endeavor, then of course we act on it. So the next time, before you, when watching TV, um, before watching a particular um, a particular TV program, you might want to briefly reflect, is this really going to, benef to be beneficial or not? And is it suitable or not? Or, and does it, is it really all that useful to spend 10 hours in front of the TV every day? So if you find that you have such kind of a habit, you might certainly want to cut down on your TV consumption. And if you notice in your own meditation practice that all the garbage that has entered your mind stream by watching too much TV is showing up as re-emerging during your intensive practice, well, then you might get the point. So, 
Mindfulness practice is to purify the mind and not to fill it certainly with uh, uh, useless information. Could you give another example for an activity that certainly would certainly contradict your purpose of uh, uh, deepening your mindfulness practice at home? Your life is perfect. Social media. Oh, good point. <laughs> so, getting getting more and more involved in Facebook, and certainly with that, certainly then having more and more time for practice, or less and less time for practice. So you want to at least you know, set certain limits. It's great. I'm told certain, you know, Facebook is great. <laughs> and to reconnect with old friends, uh, maybe even uh, from school, from the school days. But uh, and you know, there is a certain addictive quality to it. And I have noticed you know, that... Uh, a great adherence, or you know, people who greatly love uh, uh, Facebook, you know, spend more and more time indoors and less and less time outdoors. And that's uh, maybe not such a fortunate development. Now, the Satipatthana Sutta gives us certainly some guidance in terms of uh, uh, what clear comprehension uh, is about, at least one aspect, uh, namely during uh, activities. And this discourse says, one acts with clear awareness in going forth and back, in looking ahead or behind, in bending and stretching, wearing one's clothes, and certainly in eating, drinking, chewing, swallowing, and so on and so forth. So many of, or all of these activities we will be engaging in during our daily life. The Buddha has further given advice on clear comprehension in regard to, to talking, or in another place, clear comprehension in regard to moderation in eating. Now, especially during an intensive retreat, retreatants have relatively little opportunity to practice mindfulness in speech. Now, when it comes to mindfulness in daily life, things are quite certainly the opposite 
and certainly we will be interacting with the people around us and certainly at that point or this offers an opportunity to practice mindfulness in speech now more on that in a little in a short certain while allow me to first mention a number or some benefits that are to be gained from mindfulness practice. One major benefit is that it certainly will help to nourish our faith that has arisen during, that has certainly uh, developed during intensive practice. And then being mindful will also give us an opportunity to be mindful of our intentions, intentions to do, to say, to you know, think. And so when we bring mindfulness to this particular area, it brings the benefit of allowing us a moment or two of reflection. Do we really want to um, implement that certain intention or not? Is it really all that wholesome or not? If we find that an action my body, speech, or that mind brings harm to ourselves, brings harm to others, and harm to um, both, then we might not want to act on such an intention. So, mindfulness of intentions opens up a huge area of opportunities, and uh, it also helps you know, to cut down on uh, impulsive um, actions and certainly uh, and their consequences. What would you say happens through um, through mindfulness integrated into our daily life? in terms of the impurity or purity of the mind. Does the impurity suddenly increase or decrease? It might seem to increase initially. They might uh, increase, but if we're quite conscientious in our practice, uh, there is, in the long run, and of course, making exceptions um, in the short run, mindfulness practice might contribute to a gradual purification of the mind. And with that, then, more and more wholesome mental states will arise. They might not be all that strong yet, but at least things are going in the right direction. A retreat in who's come off intensive retreat and has had 
mm, an experience of equanimity, so balance of fertile mind during daily life will uh, have an opportunity to um, monitor um, how we interacted with the world around us and whether there is a lot of reactivity or non-reactivity. And if one finds, uh, if one notices uh, some reactivity towards this or that uh, uh, formation, then we might uh, want to turn that into more balance. So when we pay attention to developing equanimity during our daily life, gradually uh, this uh, uh, may happen. After after a busy and certain, let's say a very um, well a day with mixed experiences, some pleasant, some unpleasant. When we sit down for for a session of mindfulness practice. And the things of uh, that happen during the day come and come up. Then uh, there's an opportunity you know, to look at uh, you know, those, and uh, um, also to let go of uh, certain um, unwholesome states that may have uh, accumulated unwholesome states of mind. Otherwise, not practicing. We might carry such unwholesome mental states around, not just for a day or two, but for weeks or even months. Worldly benefits can be expected from regular mindfulness practice, and this is according to modern scientific research. Dr. Daniel Goldman, who together with Professor Richard Davidson from the University of Wisconsin, uh, uh, Madison has is have the two have written a book called Altered Traits that will be published later this year, and this certain book focuses on the most important. Aspects or research uh, research findings. Now, one quite amazing finding is that meditation changes, and this is mindfulness meditation, changes gene expression. A 2014 study published in the Psychoneuroendocrinology 
has discovered specific molecular changes in the body after a period of just eight hours of mindfulness meditation. Meditation is nothing, mindfulness meditation is nothing new. It's a practice that has been adopted by cultures of Asian countries with ancient Indian scriptures from even 5,000 years ago detailing certain techniques. But it is certain a relative newcomer to the West. Researchers compared the effects of a day of intensive mindfulness meditation in a group of experienced meditators with a group of untrained subjects who enjoyed a day of quiet, non-meditative activities. Researchers from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and certainly the Institute of Biomedical Research of Barcelona, Spain, believe this is the first study to find a relationship between meditation and gene expression. After eight hours, the meditators showed a range of genetic and molecular differences, including reduced levels of pre-inflammatory genes. This correlates with faster recovery from a stressful situation. Dr. Or Professor Davidson stated that this is the first paper that shows rapid alterations in gene expression within subjects associated with mindfulness meditation practice. So just imagine that this practice that seems so gentle that this can have such a profound impact on, on the body. Moreover, the results showed that the extent to which some of the genes were down-regulated was associated with faster cortisol recovery to a social stress test, where participants were challenged to make an impromptu speech of uh, uh, of the hand, um, or complete mental, uh, or complete mental calculations in front of an audience. Now, plenty of physical benefits of meditation have been described 
such as a decrease in heart rate and uh, a slowed respiration, decreased blood pressure, lower uh, lipid levels, and suddenly a decreased level of uh, circulating uh, stress hormones and many other um, aspects. Uh, maybe to add one more, according to, again, Professor Davidson, mindfulness practice helps to strengthen the immune system. So you get sick less, uh, less, less likely. Now, from a psychological point of view, retreatants typically uh, experience a lower uh, level of anxiety and stress. There's likely to be less substance abuse and an overall uh, uh, psychological health or better uh, psychological health. Reduction of hypertension and uh, you know, then in cancer you know, patients, a reduction of stress-related symptoms uh, was uh, noticed. Now, that's, those are just uh, some uh, benefits uh, that have been um, highlighted by uh, modern uh, sciences and for us certainly to consider when we do our daily mindfulness satna practice. Now, as mentioned, not briefly indicated earlier on, there's a need for mindfulness in verbal interaction actions. And we do want to make sure that certain our in verbal interactions fulfill a certain uh, criteria. If we say never mind, let the words just tumble out of the mouth. Uh, it doesn't matter what the results are. And we then lash out at others. We abuse, verbally abuse others. We state um, things that are not true. Then, will this be helpful? For <laughs> No? <laughs> uh, those certain things that will not be helpful for uh, the interaction nor for society as a whole. Now, the Buddha has given quite a number of points and, or if you like, to advice on proper speech. Namely, to be to uh, um, practice clear comprehension with regard to the topic that we want to uh, engage in. So we can talk about uh, a thousand different things, but it's really 
every topic all that valuable. The Buddha states, when a retreatant abides, or a person abides, if one's mind inclines to talking, one resolves such talk as is low, vulgar, coarse, ignoble, unbeneficial, and which does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana, namely, talk of kings, of robbers, of ministers, of armies, of dangers, of battles, of food, of drink, clothing, beds, garlands, perfumes, relatives, vehicles, and then of countries, of trivialities, and so on. Such talk I shall not utter. In this way, one has clear comprehension of that. But one resolves such talk as deals with effacement, as favors the mind's release, and which leads to complete disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment and Nibbana, talk on wanting little on contentment, seclusion, aloofness from society, arousing energy, virtue, concentration, wisdom, deliverance, knowledge and vision of deliverance, such talk I shall utter. In this way, one has clear comprehension of that. So, do you see some room for improvement? The Buddha has given his own son, Rahula, some good advice on actions. Um, action with the body, action by speech, and action by uh, the mind. Now, we shall focus on uh, action by uh, speech. Rahula, when you wish to do an action by speech, you should reflect upon that same verbal action thus. Would this action that I wish to do by speech lead to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome verbal action with painful consequences, with painful results? When you reflect, if you know this action that I wish to do by speech would lead to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both, it is an unwholesome verbal action with painful consequences, with painful results. Then you definitely should not do such an uh, action by speech. 
But when you reflect and you know this action that I wish to do by speech would not lead to my own affliction or to the affliction of others or to the affliction of both. It is a wholesome verbal action with pleasant consequences, with pleasant results. Then you may engage in such action by speech. So what the, what the Buddha here recommends is uh, that uh, we carefully um, ponder the quality of what we intend to say, the quality and the potential consequences of, we, of what we intend to say. Now, there's some very basic aspects, if paid attention to, may steer us in the right direction when it comes to verbal interactions. Namely, advice given in the first volume of the Majjhima Nikayatna, section 126. When you speak to others, you might speak at the right time or at the wrong time, according to fact or not, gently or harshly, with a mind full of love or with a mind full of hatred. So the criteria here are, the first one, the timing of uh, our breaking into uh, speech. When you know that another uh, person is mm, terribly angry and you want to bring across a sensitive message to that person, would that be the right time to talk to him or her? When someone is angry, and absolutely not. You will. You may want to wait until that person's anger has calmed down, and uh, and until you know, the person is in a somewhat certain good you know, mood, and certainly then you, know, you say you know, what certainly needs to be said. The second criterion to be considered is whether what one intends to say is in accordance with fact or not. So, true or not. And as retreatants, being mindful from moment to moment and observing precepts, and among them the fourth precept of right speech, we do want to pay close attention to this. And over time, it can be stated that retreatants become more and more sensitive to this point and more and more try to ensure accuracy in their communication. The third criterion is whether what we intend to say is sudden and gentle or harsh. 
and certainly the f next criterion is uh, uh, whether our mind is filled with loving kindness, metta, or rather uh, filled with uh, hatred, dosa. So the attitude with which we say things and uh, the attitude being uh, strongly influenced by uh, this or that predominant mental state, that attitude uh, may make a huge difference. Do we say everything that comes to the mind? We see someone, certain, some idea comes, certain, uh, some negative idea comes up in the mind, and we just certain, uh, say what, certain, uh, we just speak, uh, we just verbalize it. Well, that would be a sure way of offending people. The Buddha gave a recommendation for restraint. Not just restraint of the body, but also restraint in speech. So he says, as is recorded in Dhammapada verse 361, restraint in body is good, good is restraint in speech. Restraint in mind is good, good is restraint in all the senses. Retreatant or a person restrained in all the senses is freed from all ills, so from samsaric, from the suffering of samsara. When a person hurls abuse, verbal abuse at us, if we reciprocate by hurling verbal abuse back, will this improve the situation? Will this make for harmonious living? Obviously not. And Thus, it's a good idea to simply restrain oneself if, if one is facing verbal abuse and then not to respond in kind. Now, in the end, from a point of view of gamma and vipaka, namely action and certain karmic result, we will be responsible for our deeds. In terms of speech and certain ethical precepts, well, we have the precept on right speech, Namely, or the advice as part of Futna, the uh, third uh, path factor, one avoids falsehood and abstains from it. One speaks the truth, is devoted to the truth, reliable, worthy of confidence, no deceiver of men and women. One avoids slandering and backbiting. 
what one has heard here, one does not repeat there, so as to cause dissension there. And what one has heard there, one does not repeat here, so as to cause dissension here. Thus, one unites those that are divided and those that are united. Uh, one encourages. Concord gladdens the person one delights and rejoices in Concord, and is, uh, it, is, it is Concord that one speaks uh, or spreads by one's words. One avoids harsh language, one avoids uh, gossip and meaningless talk. By carefully applying these uh, these points to our speech, over time it's quite likely that our speech will become uh, more and more purified. And that will be good for us and it will also be good for others and for both. Now, communication involves uh, not just speaking, but it also involves listening. And when it comes to listening, we want to uh, do so um, in an active manner, with mindfulness, and also with empathy or compassion. So we really want to uh, feel what the other person is saying. We want to understand where he or she is coming from. Now, benefits and uh, applications of mindfulness in our uh, daily life go much uh, beyond what uh, beyond of what has certainly been sketched so far. We live at a time when the impact of humans on the climate is very serious. And so you will be familiar with the topic of climate change. And in this context, we can either say, okay, you know, this is none of my interest, and I'll simply just ignore, or you know, we can you know, say, well, you know, what if I, you know, what if I try to contribute you know, towards uh, an uh, improvement of uh, you know, the situation? What if I you know, then you know, start being mindful of my consumption habits? And so, look to look at an area that is under my control. And if one finds that um, some of one's uh, or then yeah, certain there's certain consumption um, 
habits Satya there that are not really all that useful and not useful for our globe in the long run, then we might Satya want to change this and Satya maybe simplify our lives in a way and live in a way that is in conformity what this globe can handle. Of course, there's much more to, or much more could be said uh, in this regard, but we just don't have the time. Now, a few questions certainly remain, namely on perception and intuition. In daily situations, in particular interrelational contents, or contact, sorry, how to trust one's perception of a situation to inform decision-making? What's the role of intuition, if any such thing does exist? Well, mindfulness certain practice clearly helps to train our perceptions over time, they will get sharper and um, more lively, more vivid. Mindfulness practice also helps certain to, or, or at some times, you know, generates uh, you know, some intuition, and one would have to then care for, if there is a, a certain intuition, how to deal with a person, how to interact with a person. If a certain intuition is there, then one will have to carefully reflect whether this intuition is, that whether it's really realistic or not, does it make sense or not, what would be the consequences of this. If one finds that it's conducive to our uh, own good to you know, the good of others and you know, the good of both, you know, then no one could act uh, on such an, an intuition. But simply blindly um, acting on intuitions, I'd rather uh, be careful with that. Also, We do not have to decide, we do not have to take action or jump into action uh, right away. It's worth, especially when the major decisions are concerned, to let something sit and then to ponder it, to meditate on it, to sleep over it, and then after a while the correct approach becomes obvious. Now, the second last, oh, not going, the third last question, that namely in our practice, 
if the heart-mind is inclining towards the peace of the cessation of arising of all formations, what is the difference between that and the so-called craving for uh, no more becoming? We bhava tanha in the Pani uh, scriptural language. It's one of three uh, cravings. So we bhava tanha is referred to or defined as a craving for non-becoming. That we bhava tanha in essence is of an annihilation belief which is a kind of wrong view. So craving for annihilation. Now that's not Satna what Satna we intend, but rather we make good use no, sorry, we make good use of our human existence, we see its preciousness, its value for Dhamma practice and for realization. And what we want to is certain to realize Satna the Dhamma and thereby gain and again, the stream of Fatna, um, or the uh, noble path of Fatna stream entry, and Fatna uh, uh, there uh, by ensuring um, a more wholesome rebirth, if any. So the uh, direction of this Vibhavatana is quite a different one. Now, Sairu Pandita wrote in his book, In This Very Life, that according to scriptures, a wise person who can teach meditation at the minim, as a minimum prerequisite must have practiced meditation and reached the stage of insight into the arising and passing away of all phenomena. Now, here comes the first question. How do you ask a meditation teacher if he or she have met certainly this minimum prerequisite? <laughs> and the uh, answer to this will follow. And why is this important? Now, the, the, the Venerable Zaidu Pandita may have made this certain statement, and it's well, uh, is certain part of the book in this certain very life. Yet, we do have to see things in a, a correct certain perspective. To gain the inside knowledge of Fatna, the fast arising and passing away of formation, so the fourth inside knowledge, this is what, very difficult or quite easy? 
What would you say? No, it's relatively easy. <laughs> it's relatively easy. So for, let's say, a retreat of moderate faculties, this can be gained in maybe 10 days or 15 days. Now, with 15 days of practical meditation experience, do you really dare to go out there in the world and be a teacher? Why would this certainly be somewhat certain and dangerous? Pardon me? You haven't mastered yourself, that's it. Or another way of looking at it is it takes other you know, retreatants just 14 days and uh, if they continue to practice, uh, they will be more experienced uh, than a meditation teacher who has just gained uh, the insight knowledge of the arising, passing away of formations. And uh, if uh, one is then guiding, uh, if one has to guide retreatants who are far advanced, far beyond one's own achievements in one's practice, well, then things get a bit complicated. And then it would certainly simply just not be um, fair and not ethically, not responsible to uh, uh, guide in meditation or to teach. Now, the Venerable Sadhu Panditan at certainly some other point in time, back in Burma, at the Panditorama Meditation Center in Yangon, once mentioned, even speaking of himself, even after years and years of practice, after decades of being practicing mindfulness and teaching mindfulness, and decades of having studied the you know, scriptures, yet at times he felt he wasn't quite adequate yet as a meditation teacher. Just take a look at that humility, the humbleness there. And so if we compare our, if we you know, compare you know, to the qualification or, or to the uh, the depth of the Buddha's you know, wisdom, and we look at our own little uh, degree of uh, wisdom, well, uh, then uh, it's uh, maybe a good idea you know, to practice as much as possible for as long as possible before we set ourselves up as a teacher. The Venerable Pandita, during that certain time I've just referred to, so this long time ago, he also said, as a teacher, one needs a huge amount of energy. Teaching others is what? Easy? A piece of cake? <laughs> well, what do you think? It's not. It's quite difficult. And there's a, a huge amount of responsibility that goes along with it, namely for uh, the retreatants, to make sure you know, that uh, each and everyone is on the right uh, track. So, 
The second question, and why is this important? Well, I guess that's then also uh, answered. Maybe still one more aspect. If a person is overly eager to go out there teaching others, then, and Sadhana does only relatively little um, practice oneself, then teaching others, one or one might end up even being successful in teaching others. Being successful means that more and more people will come and students will come and want to take certain teachings. And this means what for our own practice? Less and less time for our own practice. Our own practice will degenerate and that's dangerous. Now, the last question, the last point to address, namely, what about the karma? So the um, the karmic results in terms of no action. This is being qualified further. Is Karma, action, created for a person who decides to take no action against injustice or other wrongs. For example, if I witness a murder but take no action to stop it. Or, second example, if I see a co-worker discriminated based on race but take no action. Well, at the time of the Buddha, in terms of caste system, did he simply just accept it? He took strong action on that. He again and again lambasted the caste system. In terms of the status of women, he very much encouraged, he tried to uplift the status of women in society at the time. Maybe if we look at it from a modern perspective, it might not have been enough. Now, when it comes to you know, things certain like the degradation of the environment, if we see it, and yet certain we decide for no action, and then, in the end, who is responsible? What do you think? Are we ourselves? And what we can refer to here are the precepts, especially the first one 
of not taking life and not taking life includes not only our fellow human beings but includes all living beings all sentient beings even some insects or the fish or the bird or the mammals the other aspect that's Mm, the other teaching you know, that is uh, uh, relevant in this context comes in the form of the four you know, Brahma Vihara, so the four you know, divine abodes, mm, namely the qualities of loving kindness, of compassion, and so on. And it is, if there is true loving-kindness and compassion for all sentient beings, then we will not do something that uh, will affect others. Or, if uh, by not doing, by not speaking up against um, the degradation of uh, the environment, we become uh, responsible. So when we witness a murder, and there is a way of preventing it, then, and we're not taking action, then we are probably to be blamed. And the same thing goes for the second case, namely not acting on discrimination. It does certainly require courage to you know, speak out, but if it's done in a proper way, keeping the Buddha's guidance on um, proper speech in mind, then why should this not be possible? Now, this brings us to the end of our closing talk. The, tri the retreat has unfolded in a beautiful manner. Much spiritual work has been done, much has been achieved, and I, and I hope uh, you too uh, will be pleased to know what has happened in uh, your meditation practice. Gratitude goes for this, first of all, to whom? The Buddha. <laughs> me, you can take me, you can leave me out of the picture. <laughs> so it goes to you know, the Buddha, it goes to a long um, lineage of uh, teachers who've passed on you know, these teachings on mindfulness from one generation to the next. And so including the Venerable Mahasi side of Burma, including the Venerable Sadhu Pandita Bhimamsa of Burma, who was instrumental in bringing Satipatthana meditation in or to the West, especially to this very center here. Now, there's also gratitude to IMS, Sadhana, to the Forest Refuge, to all of those who made um, the retreat center, the forest refuge, as well as uh, BCBS, uh, possible um, gratitude towards uh, all the volunteers, uh, past as well as certain uh, present, who.
to make it possible that retreatants can come here and certainly spend a month in intensive retreat, which out in normal life it would be almost impossible to do. Now, much wholesome deeds have been accumulated during this retreat, and the merits of those wholesome deeds let us share those in the following way, namely by reciting four lines in or several lines in the Pali scriptural language. But first I'll give you the translation of it in uh, English so that you know what you're uh, reciting. Uh, let this merit be for our relatives. May they be happy. May all beings share this merit which we have uh, uh, acquired during this sudden retreat and uh, merit of various kinds of various kinds of happiness. Now, I'll recite one or line by a line and if you could certainly then uh, please repeat. Idam no nyatinam hotu Sukita hontu nyatayo Idam no nyatinam hotu Sukita hontu nyatayo. Idam no nyatinam hotu. Sukita hontu nyatayo. Ita watacha Amehi Sambodam Bunya Sambodam Sabedewa Anumodan too. Sabha Sampati Siddhiya Ita Vatacha Amehi Sampadam Punya Sampadam Sabe Sata Anumodan Sabha Sampadi Siddhiya Ita Vatacha Amehi Sampadam Punya Sampadam 
Sabe Buddha Anumodantu. Sabba Sampadisidiya. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, and this brings our retreat to a close. Maybe one more thing. Um, most of you will be departing tomorrow, and so I wish you a safe journey back to your uh, homes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.